We're on a journey, saints. And the journey can be difficult, can be challenging, but we know where it ends. I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. And nothing, nothing will cause that to fall away because I'm united to Christ by grace through faith. I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is our text this morning. What a glorious psalm this is. What a psalm we need to hear from. And now I invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit, we need help. And you help. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Where would we be without your help? Oh, Lord, would you work in us powerfully in this hour by your spirit, through your word, that we would look no place other than to you for help. Do a work for your glory, for our good, and for the benefit under, of those under our influence, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, the, the psalmist of Psalm 121 has a presupposition. He has a pre-understanding, which is an assumption that he needs help. And I know in a group this size... There are some here who are keenly aware of their need for help. 
and others who are not. Some of us find ourselves in situations right now, right now, when we have meditated upon and expressed to the Lord our need for help. Others of us may be in a circumstance wherein life feels easy breezy, if you will, such that you have forgotten that you need help. And still others of us may be largely unaware of the help that we so desperately need. And so let me just assert a truth. Regardless of your feelings, regardless of your current circumstances, regardless of your past experiences, regardless of your worldview, regardless of all of it, you need help from the Lord. And let me take that a step further. Even if you realize that you need help from the Lord, we are so often unaware of the quality and the quantity of help that we need and that he provides. We are totally, completely, wholly dependent on the God of the Bible, who depends on no one. It is in him that we live and move and have our very being. It is from him and through him and to him that are all things. It is apart from him that we can do nothing. Nothing. Oh, we need help from the Lord. And may I suggest that the Lord allows, permits, yes, even ordains, for difficulties, for trials, for tragedies, for afflictions, for tribulations, for troubles, to come into our lives to wisely remind us that we need help and to graciously offer us an opportunity to look to him for help. And if you have a problem with that suggestion, we just sang earlier about the God who sends the waves that bring us nigh or near. So if you sang it, then maybe pay attention to the lyrics next time. This is what the Bible teaches. That, that we need to look to the ever-present help that is the Lord. We all have experiences in which we realize to some extent or another that we need help. And so the question is this this morning, where will you turn for help? I recall a time in my life when I became aware of my need for help. Between the ages of 8 and 12 was a difficult time in my life. I was raised by a loving, single mother, but we all know that the design for God's family is a father and a mother. My father left before I was born, and to this day, I've never met him. But it wasn't really until about the age of eight that I deeply felt the need 
to have a dad around to help me. And so where does an eight-year-old boy shop for a dad? The answer is anywhere and everywhere. I remember seeing grown men at the mall or at the grocery store, at the gas station or at the park or, or literally anywhere, and I was thinking to myself, maybe he could be my father. Rare. Rare is the eight-year-old who can see beyond what his physical eyes can perceive. We can be a lot like your average eight-year-old. When we are in need for help, we can oftentimes look everywhere else but beyond what our physical eyes can see. Oh, how often, how often are you and I tempted to look to impermanent things for help? Some people numb themselves through substance abuse because it helps them get through their challenging situation, or so they believe. Some people comfort themselves by consumerism, unrestricted shopping, because it helps them comfort themselves and helps them get through the challenging situation, or so they believe. Some people console themselves by materialism, their house or their car, because it helps them get through their challenging situation, or so they believe. Some people find solace in their bank accounts. Why? Because it helps them get through their challenging situation. The same is true with those who ease their minds by being a busybody and meddling in someone else's business and their issues because it helps them get through their challenging situation, or so they believe. Or, or just gossiping. Let's belittle and, and slander and gossip about others because it helps me in my situation, or so they believe. And even this, there are so many temporal good gifts that the Lord so graciously gives to us. And sometimes we seek help, yes, even from those good gifts alone. But the purpose of those gifts is what? Is that we would look beyond the gifts themselves to the one who gave the gift. So some people think if they just had a husband or a wife or a child or a fill-in-the-blank, then those blessings would help them in their current challenging situation. And yes, those are tremendous blessings from the Lord, and yes, they are a means of help at times. But it does not necessarily follow that if you had a husband or a wife or a child, that they would be a means of help. Those of us who are married and or have children understand that we need a source of help from outside of our precious families. Oh, saint, oh, friend, where are you going to look to help when you lose a loved one this year? Where are you going to look to help when your marriage hits a rough patch? Where are you going to look for help when your family is in turmoil? Where are you going to look for help when you lose your job? Where are you going to look for help when you're reviled for being faithful to God? When are you going to look, or where are you going to look to help 
and the plans for your life come crashing down? Or simply, where are you going to look for help when your life is just peachy because you need it then too? We all need help. We always need help. Where? Where are you to turn for help? Do you have the humility to acknowledge that you need help? Sometimes that's our biggest problem. We need to be humble and say, yes, I need help. And then do you have the ability by the grace of God to look beyond what your eyes see, your physical eyes see, to look beyond what your heart feels, and then to look to the Lord. This brings us to the main idea of our text. And it's simple. You need help. I need help. We all need help. Praise the Lord that he helps, amen? Two points. We're going to look first at the circumstantial con- contemplation in verse 1. Help? Question mark? And then we're going to look at the critical conclusion. And the conclusion is the Lord God himself in verses 2 through 8. So let's consider the circumstantial contemplation in verse 1. And before we dive into verse 1, let us look at the superscription. It says a song of ascents. And if you're familiar with these songs of ascents, there's 15 of them. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are all categorized as songs of ascent or psalms of, of pilgrimage, pilgrim psalms or psalms of Zion. And these 15 psalms were sung on the way to or upon arrival at Jerusalem during the great three feasts wherein the Lord called Israel to come to Jerusalem to worship him. Israel was called to travel to Jerusalem uh, from wherever they might be to gather so that they could worship at the temple during these feasts. And you have to put yourself in the shoes of one of these Jews who would be traveling. They would travel tens, sometimes over a hundred miles by foot or animal to assemble in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And as you can imagine, various trials and various difficulties would arise as you make that journey. And this psalm served as a reminder to these traveling pilgrims that the God of Israel is the God who helps and keeps his people. We can't get away from the context of this psalm. The priority is worship. The Lord says, come and worship me. I help and keep my people who obey and submit and worship. And so the psalmist declares in verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? I lift up my eyes to the hills or to the mountains. It can be translated either way. And there are at least two ways for us to understand the significance of these hills or mountains. The first way is this. One way to understand this text is 
to be familiar with the geography of Jerusalem. No matter where one traveled from, Jerusalem was always up in the sense that you had to go up the hill because Jerusalem was laid atop a mountain range in the regions of Judea. So as one would travel through the various hills, at some point along their journey, they would see Jerusalem, and they would lift their eyes to the hill of hills and behold Jerusalem and recall that God was the one who specially dwelt there in the temple, and he was the one who was their source of help. That's how some people understand this part of the verse. I don't take the text in that way. A second way to understand the significance of the hills was to understand that it has to do with idolatry. To understand that the dangers of the, of the dangers that the hills represented. And this is how I understand this portion of the psalm. As people would travel through the hills, pagan idol worship would be evident. There would be Asherah poles in high places dedicated to other false gods that would form the skyline. And furthermore, it was common knowledge that both thieves and criminals would hide in the crevices of the mountains, waiting for travelers to come by so that they could rob them. So as a traveler, maybe needing to travel 50, 60, 70 miles, Jerusalem is not in sight. But the hills, plural, are. And as you stand far off and look toward the hills, you would be aware of the treacherous journey ahead of you. And no, for us here today, we may not embark on a journey through the hills by foot or animal to Jerusalem through Judea. But nevertheless, we are certainly pilgrims traveling to a better place. And on that journey, we encounter dangers and idolatry. And the journey concept of Psalm 121 is almost like a parable for the entirety of one's life. The psalmist is in a circumstance where he is well aware of the danger ahead of him as he seeks to submit to and worship God. As he looks to the hills, he is likely forcibly reminded of the false gods and the dangers surrounding him. And these circumstances seemingly cause him to contemplate, or as I put it, the circumstantial contemplation. As this psalmist, he, he faces these difficulties before him and Fears start to arise. And he asks, from where? From where does my help come? He is aware of his need for help, and he is looking outside of himself for help. He looks beyond the hills. The question for us, once again, is are you aware of your need for help and secondly, and maybe more importantly, do you look outside of yourself for help? This brings us to the critical conclusion in verses 2 through 8. And one of the things that I love, absolutely adore about Psalm 121, is that the psalmist spends one verse on his position. One verse! Half of a verse on his circumstances and half of a verse on his question. And from there we are catapulted into the Lord himself, 
The next seven verses, it's the Lord, it's the Lord, it's the Lord, it's the Lord. The Lord who's the only one who can be and provide our ultimate help. We'll look at these next seven verses under four headings. First, let's look at the God who is all-powerful. The God who is all-powerful in verse 2. Verse 2 reads, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the answer to his question. From where does my help come from? He looks outside himself to the one whom he was created for. And he says, my help comes from the Lord. The psalmist looks at his difficulties and he declares, I have a helper. I have a helper, the Lord. And notice it's in all caps there. This is the divine name used here. What we refer to as Yahweh or Jehovah. And the divine name conveys the reality of God being the self-existent one, the self-dependent one. He is the God who simply is, I am that I am. And the psalmist looks beyond his, what his physical eyes can see to the one that his spiritual eyes can see. He looks beyond the hills to the one who made the hills. And the psalmist says, my help doesn't come from the pagan false gods but rather from the God whom, from whom and through him and to whom are all things. My help comes from the Lord. And then he modifies the divine name, saying, comma, I love this, who made heaven and earth. The Lord who made heaven and earth. This is a nugget of gold is what I like to call these. It's not just the Lord but it's the Lord who made heaven and earth. You tell me, you tell me, if the Lord made heaven and earth, is he not powerful enough to help you in your circumstance right now? You may not feel like it. And as a matter of fact, I'm not even asking you to feel like it. What I'm asking you to do is to affirm the truth of God's word. This is the Lord who made heaven and earth. The psalmist recalls God's creative act, the Lord who made heaven and earth, and who recalls this creative, creative act. Why? One, because it clearly identifies and declares that the Lord is all-powerful. This is the omnipotent God who made it all. He made it all by the power of his word. He is certainly able and willing to help the pilgrim traveling on their way. And two, it's all his. He made it all, and it's all his. He owns it all. There is no better help, my friend, than he who made heaven and earth. The whole universe is at his disposal. Do you hear that? The whole universe is at his disposal. So why in the world would we look to the things within the universe rather than the one who owns it all? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And from our vantage point as New Testament Christian believers, we, we really have a clear understanding of how he who made heaven and earth helps the one who looks to him. We understand that this God who made heaven and earth 
entered into that heaven and earth by assuming a human nature and walking about his creation as a man, doing everything that the Lord commanded him to do and nothing that the Lord didn't command him to do. The Lord Jesus Christ is who we speak of. He was faithful. He was righteous. He did everything completely and totally in submission to his Father. And he died, was crucified on a tree. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. He took the curse, the wrath of God upon himself, that which we deserve. He got our penalty. And by faith in him, we receive his righteousness. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, appearing to over 500 people and promising that he would send his spirit. He ascended into heaven. He Even now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will indeed come again to judge the living and the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ is our help, church. He is our ever-present help. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And this is the priority of worship, that we see Christ as the Bible declares him, and we believe and we submit with great joy to him. Or as Jesus himself would put it, seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. And all these other things, all the things you need help with, they'll be added unto you. The psalmist says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this brings us to our next heading. The God who is sleepless. The God who is sleepless. Verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 reads, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will neither, or he who keeps you will not slumber. And we have a shift here. In verse 3, and you may have noticed that shift. There's a shift in personal pronouns. We have the first person singular, my. My help comes from the Lord. And now we have a shift to the second person singular, you. So he declares that my help comes from the Lord, but then he seemingly speaks to others. Others, maybe a friend who's traveling along with him, or perhaps he's a priest and now teaching. He is certain and starts preaching to this fellow pro pilgrim. My help comes from the Lord, and so does yours. Friend, we, we need that in this church. There are some of you in a season of life, you're confident in the Lord's help. You came into church this morning and said, Woo! Psalm 121, my help does come from the Lord. And there are others of you in this church who may be questioning that. Oh, how we need a brother or a sister to sit us down and look us dead in the eye and say, not only does my help come from the Lord, but so does yours. We need that, saints. Be faithful to do that in the context of this church. 
We also see beginning in verse 3, not only the shift in personal pronoun, but we see the the introduction of a reoccurring word. It's keep or keeper. We see it six times in this psalm, and it's the same Hebrew root. And the idea is to take care of or to protect or to preserve. See it over and over and over. The psalmist says, He will not let your foot be moved. And Israel was notorious for its rocky and slippery terrain. There would be a difficulty to travel as you pilgrim to Jerusalem. Possibility of injury. Possibility of falling. Possibility of falling even to one's death. And the psalmist says the Lord will establish your footing as you submit to his word and go and do as he says. Worship him in Jerusalem. And the Hebrew of verse 3 can legitimately be translated in the form of a wish or in the form of a stated blessing or a prayer. As a matter of fact, commentators understand this to be a prayer. It could be translated, may he not let your foot be moved. Or may he who keeps you not slumber. And why that's important is because what happens in verse 4. Because the Hebrew in verse 4 does not give us that option. Rather, it comes in with a strong reinforcement that God, in fact, is the sleepless God. Let me pronounce a blessing on you. May he keep you. May he bless you. May he not slumber as you progress to Jerusalem. And then verse 4 comes in and says, without a doubt, he will not slumber. He will not sleep. Verse 4, behold, an invitation to, to see and to meditate upon who the Lord really is. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Not only does this verse emphatically state, indeed, God does not slumber. But the Hebrew term translated in the ESV, sleep, speaks of the sleep of death. So he's not going to fall asleep now or forevermore. And the Lord is going to always be alive. He does not die. He is the sleepless God, the everlasting God, the God who is He's not asleep at the wheel, and he'll never fall asleep at the wheel. It's almost as if verse 4 comes in and says, are you kidding me? Don't even consider the fact that the Lord is not at work. Don't even let that cross your mind when you're in the midst of that circumstance where you want to doubt. No, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. And this causes us to pause for a moment. I don't know if you guys are anything like me. When I'm really busy, you know what I do? I try not to sleep. You know how that works out for me? (laughs) I can maybe get a few good days in, but by day three, pray for my wife and my kids. I I need sleep. I need sleep. Oh, sleep well, children of God. You need sleep, and that's part of humbling ourselves before the Lord. Knowing that we know, and that we serve, and that we're kept by the one who doesn't sleep ever. Praise the Lord. 
To illustrate God's sleeplessness, let me turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 for a moment. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, a passage that you're likely familiar with. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, which was a a pagan god, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord." And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. That's a mistake. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God. Put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around at the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the same time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he prepared the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it out on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their backs 
or their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized him. And Elijah brought them down to the brook, Kishon, and slaughtered them there. All other gods are not gods. Rather they be pagan, false gods, or idols of your heart. In your greatest time of need, they will not answer you. But there is one, the Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah, who is an ever-present help. Call upon the Lord. For this God does not sleep, but he, but he forever keeps and watches over his people. This brings us to our next heading. In verses 5 and 6, we see the God who protects. The God who protects. Verse 5 reads, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. And in the Hebrew, the phrase, The Lord is your keeper, is the center of the psalm. There are eight strophes or lines before this line and eight that follow after it. And this is a common literary device in Hebrew poetry which reveals the thrust or the heart of the passage. The, the main point is the Lord is your keeper. If there's anything you get from this message, take heed of the fact that if you are united to Christ by grace through faith, the Lord is your keeper. Then he says, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. And shade on your right hand is a Hebrew idiom. And it expresses the nearness of refreshing protection. You can think about being out in the desert needing some shade, right? Some of y'all felt this this past couple weeks here in Los Angeles, huh? We need some help. That's the picture. He's near. He's at the right hand. And he's there to offer a refreshing kind of help. The psalmist says that the Lord is that near and refreshing protection. And verse 6 goes on to provide details regarding what the Lord protects from. Verse 6 reads, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. And the sun and the moon, as you know, are the physical masses that rule the skies. And they also represent the elements of heaven. And so we think of heat and cold and wind and rain and snow. And furthermore, the sun and the moon were representative of both day and night. The text is saying that regardless of the time, day or night, regardless of the weather, the Lord is your protection. The text does not say that harsh elements and difficulties will not be present. But rather, the text says, that they will not strike you, literally strike you dead. In other words, God ultimately protects his people. And nothing can overcome them as they travel in obedience to the Lord. 
And listen, I don't know what kind of insurance policy you have. But this text is telling us that this is ultimate, comprehensive care with 24-hour protection. If you don't have that protection, get on board today. Call upon the name of the Lord. Praise God, say, if you know the Lord, and that this is the protection and the care that you have. Know it and be comforted by the fact that the Lord is with you. Make worship of this God your priority. This brings us to our final heading. The God who preserves. The God who preserves. Verses 7 through 8. And before I read verse 7, at this point of the psalm, perhaps some of you are feeling tension. We're talking about protection. We're talking about keeping and how the Lord watches over us. However, we have all experienced or are experiencing and or will experience legitimate hurt, legitimate pain, legitimate tragedy, legitimate affliction. If this psalm is true, and it is, then how is it that the Lord keeps us when we have had these terrible experiences? And I believe these final verses answer that question. Up to this point, the psalm has primarily focused on the immediate help and protection that the Lord offers to his people as they prioritize worshiping him and traveling to Jerusalem to do so just in the way that he commanded. But now in verses 7 and 8, we move beyond that. The psalm begins to move on from this life as we now know it to the entirety of one's existence. Verse 7 reads, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. I want to emphasize you and your life. He will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The text does not say that the Lord will keep you, your life, and your stuff. That's not what it says. Your stuff, even your emotions, even your friends, even your family, even your possessions, even your church family, whatever it is, will be affected by legitimate tragedy and evil. But you, who have faith in the true God of the Bible, you, your inner man, your soul will be kept from evil as you await glory. This is exactly what we see in Romans 8. Exactly what we see. I'm going to turn there and just read it. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome acknowledges that there's something future coming and that everyone in Christ can have certainty, assurance of that future reality of salvation. And even now in the present, you are being kept, you, your life, being kept by the Lord himself. 
He says in verse 18 of Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Hear that, saint. Hear that. The suffering that you're experiencing now has nothing on your eternal destiny, your eternal relationship with God and your brothers and sisters where there will be no more sin. And then he says for, in verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, amen? Grown who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We are being kept. There's a future time where that keeping that is now present will reveal itself in a way that we can't even comprehend. Nothing, Paul goes on to say, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. To be kept from evil here and now does not mean, does not mean an easy life. It's not what it means. What it means is that we live a difficult life armed with the power of God himself. We sang it earlier, Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me be- beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Then he says in verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Or Jesus in Luke 21, speaking to his apostles, he says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of they, and some of you they will put to death. But then he says, yes, you will be hated by all for my, name, for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Beloved, the Lord is keeping your life. And as you lose your life, you find it in Jesus Christ, and you become what I like to call an untouchable. Oh, lose yourself. Lose yourself. And find life in Christ. Behold him in his beauty and his glory. And bow down before him and prostrate yourself before him. And you say, I serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I no longer serve myself. I serve he who is my help. The one who made heaven and earth. And then the verse, or the psalm rather concludes in verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in 
from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, in all your doings, the Lord is keeping you now. And he will do so forevermore. Somebody say praise God. If you don't see in verse 8 the inklings or hear the inklings of the everlasting life that the Lord Jesus Christ would so clearly state in his ministry, then we're missing it. That this life now isn't really the life that we live for. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're passerbys. But our life is kept, and a day is coming when we will dwell with God himself. Jesus simply said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Beloved, where does your help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let me encourage you not to be like eight-year-old Kenny, but to look beyond what your physical eyes can see, to look beyond what your heart can feel, and to look to the one who made it all, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we need your help. And those of us who are in Christ have your help. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask, Lord, that by your spirit, through your word, you would bring to our minds on a regular basis that you are our ever-present help and that we are to look to you. Help us, O oh God, as individual saints. Help us, O oh God, as a church. Help us to be faithful to you and to live for you. For it's all waste if we don't. It's all waste, Lord. So help us to live a life for your glory and the well-being of others and not to waste our lives. Grant repentance, O oh God, to those who have been wasting their lives. Even now, Lord, would they hear your voice through the proclamation of the word and would they look to you and behold you and declare my help comes from the Lord that they might walk with you now and forevermore. Lord, we can't do this work and so we're asking that you, by your spirit, would grant salvation and repentance that leads to joy to everyone here. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.